Hosea and chapter 8 as we uh, continue in the major lessons in the minor prophets, the major lessons in the minor prophets. What we will do uh, is, first of all, just remind ourselves of the ground that we've covered. We are in the book of Hosea, and then we just want to spend a bit of time appreciating the, uh, the relevance of what we are looking at, and then after that, we will dive into the, the lessons that are appropriate for today. We, you'll notice that the title uh, is fairly lengthy. Oh, okay. The title is fairly lengthy, God Will Discipline His Idolatrous Children. So I've just been reminded um, to at least say one or two words about the special offering for the African Christian University. I, I heard the announcement this morning. I missed the one uh, that was made this afternoon. So I hope I'm not repeating what has already been said. Uh, basically, it's the fact that uh, in the last three or so years, we have not had the opportunity to uh, increase the, the enrollment of students, primarily because of uh, COVID, so we couldn't go to churches and we couldn't go to schools, so the number of students has gone down. Uh, last year, we needed to get external funding in order to cross December and January, and thankfully, our friends, uh, the SEU board in, in the U.S. was able to help us. This year, we began digging into those funds much earlier. Uh, we must have begun uh, probably August or September, thereabouts, maybe September. And so we have eaten into the funds that we fell back on, and we still now have December and January remaining before student enrollments begin in February. So really, we now have to fall back on ourselves and on ourselves as churches. And thankfully, December comes with Christmas bonuses and so on. So it's a good opportunity for us to show our external friends that, yes, we also uh, can come in and, and help. Uh, so we had a, a meeting recently of elders in the different churches within Lusaka, and one of the things we agreed to do was really to appeal to our churches for um, a, a special offering so that out of that, once hopefully we collect it from the churches, we should be able to cross December and January. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of money. Uh, we need anything between three to four hundred thousand kwacha per month. So, if you're thinking in terms of a fifty kwacha, it's actually a lot of money that we need. However, it is our institution. We began the fight. Others can only help us. We must do our part. Okay, so we'll see how the Lord will answer those prayers. Another email will come through in the course of the week to just remind us so that we can do uh, our part in supporting the university project. We've got staff members and like to make sure that they also enjoy Christmas as much as we ourselves will. Thank you very much for that reminder, Mr. Botter. So as I've already said, um, we, we are looking at um, major lessons in the minor prophets. And uh, we began with Hosea, and we're making our way all the way to Malachi. And as we make our journey there, what we are essentially doing is galloping along. So we're not really looking at the passages in details, otherwise we will be in these um, minor prophets for the next 10 to 20 years. So we began with Hosea, and uh, what we have noticed is that Hosea, like the first three or four of the minor prophets, 
deals with the period before Israel was sent into captivity. And basically, the reason Israel was sent into captivity was because of idolatry. The people of Israel no longer had a devotion for God alone. Instead, they um, began to live like all the other nations, the very nations that God pushed out of um, the land of Canaan. And the way in which God um, played out his message to Hosea, which he then shared with the people of Israel, was that he began with a played out parable, a played out parable. And that was getting Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman, and that then um, is spoken about in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. But beginning with chapter 4, um, Hosea then begins to deal more directly with the situation, having shown the played out parable, so to speak. And we noticed that in chapter 4, God basically says, so I have a controversy with my people. And he opened up what that controversy is. We noticed in chapter 5, taking us into the first three verses of chapter 6, that it was essentially that God consequently is going to discipline his people because they were unrepentant. They were continuing in their ways of sin. And then from there, chapter 6 and chapter 7, we noticed how there was a description of the stubborn and grievous sins of God's people. And that's what we looked at last time. Basically, a description, an ongoing description of the way in which the people of Israel had become. We noticed the fleeting nature of their love. We noticed their brazen unfaithfulness. We noticed that uh, while they were doing things in secret, God was saying, me, I see all these things. They are there before me. And then we noticed how they were hoping to secure themselves by going to Egypt and to Assyria in an unequal yoke. And then finally, we also noticed their uh, false repentance, the way in which it was skin deep. And God, again, who sees all things, was basically saying, you are not cheating anybody. You are only cheating yourselves because the Lord knows it is all skin deep. So, as you can see, it's again quite easy for us to see the reason why there was that played out uh, parable earlier on. Today, we're looking at three chapters, and it's obviously a major race. Chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And we are seeing how God disciplines his idolatrous children. The, and it's going to come out over and over and over again. One reason why I thought we take all the three chapters at once is because it's basically the same message. And you're going to see it as we go through. And therefore, I didn't want us to go through the same message for the next uh, three weeks. Now, he's disciplining them for idolatry, for idolatry. In the Old Testament, idolatry was largely a physical thing. People were putting up uh, wooden statues. They were putting up uh, metallic statues. They were putting up marble statues and then they were worshipping them. They would put up actual altars upon which they would give sacrifices. And it's very easy for us in the 21st century to be reading such passages and be thinking, yeah, that's for them. But really, idolatry 
is, is primarily something of the heart. It is something of the heart. And that's why, as we have been continuing, I've always wanted us to get back there so that we, we are not sitting here in judgment of the people of Israel, but realizing that we actually could be guilty and are often guilty of idolatry itself. So it might not be statues, but for instance, as Christians, we can easily make a, a, an idol of our career, that which we finally want to be in the working world for the best part of our lives. It can become such a, a, an idol that God becomes second in devotion or God becomes less than that career in terms of a sense of security. And usually those are the two things that make up an idol. One is in terms of devotion, the, the level to which you, you give yourself to something. And then secondly, it is the sense of security, that which you, you are fighting for so that you can have a greater sense of security. Another idol could easily be uh, a human being. Uh, parents, it could be a marriage partner, and so forth. Uh, a, somebody that you depend on, that gives you a sense of fulfillment, that is the, the main um, target of your devotion to the point where God becomes secondary. And an obvious one there is an unequal yoke. It's obvious that a person who says it doesn't matter uh, what God says in his word about who I'm going to marry, I'm still going to marry this person even if he or she is a non-Christian. is saying because that's where I'm going to find my fulfillment other than God and therefore I'm willing to forsake him but I will not forsake a human lover. And sometimes it's simply money or property. Again, you can understand that. A lot of people think that money will satisfy them. In fact, more money will give more satisfaction. And uh, the more property they have, the more there is the sense of security that even if things change in the future, at least I will have these properties to rely upon and so on. And God is thrown into a corner. And one more example I throw in is that of entertainment. Um, we're currently going through the World Cup, and it could be that as I'm speaking, uh, there are people, Christians, who might not be at church primarily because there is a team that's playing. And it becomes very, very real. Uh, God, we can always worship him at other times. But now it is a period of, of World Cup and so forth. So it's, it's those things that we, we need to judge ourselves. And again, if I can quickly uh, address this, one of the reasons why modern idolatry is a lot more difficult to discern than previous uh, Old Testament idolatry is that in Old Testament adultery, it was physical. You could see an actual statue in an altar and somebody sacrificing it. So it was physical. Whereas New Testament idolatry is largely idolatry of the heart. It's of the heart. It's the same Ten Commandments that are being broken. The first five, so to speak that are being broken. But because it's being broken inside here, it's, it's very difficult to, to discipline. You can discipline the second tablet. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. You can discipline there because someone can be able to come and say, yes, this is what my neighbor has done to me. But on the first tablet... You can't. How do you discipline somebody who has turned their career into 
an idol. How? How? And so in the end, God himself, who knows our hearts, is the one who then turns in disgust against us and disciplines us. And so we still need time to learn so that we can see how we can, as it were, offend God by making him secondary. Let's quickly go through chapter 8, keeping in mind that this for us is not about a little shrine that is in our bedroom. It is the sin of the heart. So uh, Hosea begins by saying, set the trumpet to your lips. And basically that phrase means, uh, I want attention drawn to what I am about to say. It's what used to happen in Old Testament times. People would be in a city and they're going about life generally. But when they see an enemy drawing near, the guys, the soldiers, the watchmen that sit along the walls at the top, when they see them, they would then turn and blow the trumpet in the city. And then everybody would quickly begin to get ready depending on what the trumpet sound was. So it disturbed the quiet life and living of the people. And this is what he is saying here. Set the trumpet to your lips. And he wants something to be said by them. And really, verse 1 to verse 3 is a summary, again, a new summary of everything we will look at. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me, they cry, my God, we Israel know you. And he's saying that's a lie. They, they are professing a religion which, in fact, they are not carrying out. The reality is this. Israel has spurned the good, and this is what is now going to happen, and this is the discipline. The enemy shall pursue him. So from verse 4 all the way to chapter 10 and the end, verse 15, it's basically this that will be played over and over and over again. So for instance, as we begin to look at verse 4, down to verse 10. The main thing I want you to notice there is the way in which in futility the people of Israel were depending on anything other than God, which is really the nature of idolatry, the nature of idolatry. When God becomes secondary and something else takes the place. So they did not seek God but rather idols, even in their social, political life. Verse 4, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols, and then he says, for their own destruction. Look at verse 6. For it, is for it is from Israel a craftsman made it. And then he says, it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So what you are seeing there is again God's people who are spending their time carrying out the welfare of their nation, but, but God is not really important to them anymore. They, 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 as it were, tip their heart in his direction. But really, the way they are ordering their entire lives is independent of God. And friends, it's possible for us, within the context of the church, and within the context of our family, families, to do exactly that. Somehow, Church is 
God is a Sunday affair when we are there for our services. But the way in which we organize church life between that Sunday and the following Sunday, the way in which we, we, we organize our family lives is now completely dependent on our cultures, on the issues of money, and everything else. And God is not primarily there. Verse 9. As I said, I'm not reading all the verses, but um, verse 9 says, notice where they've gone. For they have gone up to Assyria. Verse 10. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon wreathe because of the tribute. So they, they are finding security in these other nations. That's where they are finding security. And they are going there to Assyria and to the nations to look for allies, to, to try and get security. And God is saying, don't worry. Even there, my judgment is going to follow you. Even there, my judgment is going to follow you. So it is this futile dependence on anything but God. And I think, friends, we don't need to, to search ourselves. In, we claim to be God's people, and I trust we are. But who are we really dependent on? Who? When we look at our own strength as a church, it's really the church's prayer meetings, midweek prayer meetings, and Sunday prayer meetings. Are we really there? Is there a real dependence on God? Or we've abandoned the altar and we are busy with where our security really is. That's where our real security is. Similarly with ourselves as individuals and as families. Do, do we really pray? Do we, do we have that time alone and that time as families where we are around God's word and, and praying together in recognition that we need God? Or do we wake up in the morning and, and bang quickly to, to where it really matters? Get out there! Because that's where our security really lies. Again, God sees all these things. He sees whether there is that real dependence upon him. We are saying, my God, we know you. And God is saying, uh-uh, you don't. You actually don't. Because it's in these networkings with the world, that's where your strength really lies. Think in terms of the ministries that we are involved in. I don't know what ministry you are involved in. But do we pray in those ministries? Do, do we ever say, let's get together and pray? Do we? Or is it all mechanical? We've got to deliver this, or we've got to record this, or we've got to, to organize this meeting, or we've got to, you know, it's, it's just physical things. D do we recognize a real dependence upon God so that we may just, as it were, lie prostrate before him, saying, Lord, we need As I said, we need to apply this to ourselves in real time. Not that there's going to be a shrine and a statue there, but it is where we are finding fulfillment and devotion, and it is where our security lies. Well, from verse 11 downwards, um, the, the Hosea, or the Lord through Hosea, points out that in the light of all this now, 
they will be punished for their many sins. And notice the emphasis there, many sins. Because it's inevitable. When you are no longer treasuring your relationship with God, what tends to happen is that even morally, you begin to lose strength. And before you know it, you are multiplying sins. Look at the words put in verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Multiplied altars for sinning, and they have become to him altars for sinning. Look also at chapter 9 and verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 7 and verse 9. Halfway through verse 7. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Because of your great iniquity and great hatred. I hope your vision has those words. Great iniquity and great hatred. Or, as it is put in verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. The point there that I really want you to pick up is this same aspect of the many sins, the many sins that uh, God is, is looking at. It has now grown. That's become their way of life. In a sense, we dealt with it when we're looking at uh, the, the grievous sins of Israel. But let's follow through this uh, in a moment. We've said that there's multiplied sinners and so on. And because of this, you will notice a number of times that Hosea is saying, or better still, God is saying through Hosea, it is now time to punish you. It's now, you, you are now ripe for punishment. And this is a chorus that we'll keep seeing over and over again. Let me just pick it up now in verse 13. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Here it is. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. And the reason, verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. This is now in terms of security. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, again, for their security. So, he says, this is what he will do in punishing them. I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. The time has come for me to punish them, because they are trying to find their security in strongholds, in palaces, and even those I'm coming in to utterly destroy. Again, in chapter 9, you can't miss this aspect of forsaking God. Chapter 9, verse 1, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not the, like the peoples, for you have played the war or the prostitution, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. And here it is again, the punishment being spelled out. Threshing floor, verse 2, and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. The very places they were going to secure their relationships so that they can be more secure, that's where God is now going to send them, but in actual fact for actual punishment. And once he sends them there, 
that will be the end of their organized religion. In other words, what at one time they had become extremely lax about bringing perhaps blind animals and lame animals and maybe not even sacrificing to the Lord but sacrificing to their altars. Now God is saying, fine, I'm shutting the door and you will have absolutely no access to coming back to this place for worship. Look at verse 4. In fact, it really keeps going down and down and down, but I won't have time to read most of it. But look at verse 4 of chapter 9. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like the mourner's bread to them, and all who eat it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only, it shall not come to the house of the Lord. He's, he's closed them off because he's taking them into captivity. They will no longer have access to come back to Jerusalem. He repeats something of that in verse 5. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? What will you do? It's like Sunday has come and previously it was a day for church. But persecution has come and consequently the churches have been closed down and now Sunday arrives and you can't go to church anymore because the Lord has been disgusted with the idolatry that is there in our hearts that he has caused persecution to consequently come and clean up the entire place. So initially you were treating the worship of God as something that you never really cared about, but now you can't even go there if you want. You can't. Because he has brought in discipline. Discipline. Let's quickly continue. Because in verse 7, he repeats this statement, that this is now the time to discipline. This is now the time to discipline. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. And I think, friends, I've been a Christian long enough to realize this. That often what happens is somebody becomes a stubborn sinner. He's supposed to be a Christian. But they begin to hang on to their sin. And, and they don't want to let go. And, and, and you speak and you plead and, and it's just through continuing. Finally, a time comes and none of us know where that line is drawn in the sand. None of us. Only God. But a time comes when God says, enough is enough. And when he now comes into discipline, thankfully as we shall see with us, it is not to send us to hell if we are his true children, but definitely there is suffering that comes in. Those who are guilty know that this is a price I am now paying. It's a price I am now paying. Look at verse 10 downwards. Uh, we've already seen the, the verses in between talking about uh, great, great hatred and great iniquity and uh, being deeply uh, corrupted and so on. But when we come to verse, verse 10, I want you to notice again this, this motif, this um, uh, cycle of God's grace, then idolatry, and then punishment. I want you to notice this, because this... This is really what these, these chapters are all about. Uh, remember the, the, the picture of um, marriage that he began with. There's, first of all, a love affair, okay? A man reaching out to a woman, falling in love, and saying, I want you to be my wife. And then there is the prostitution that comes in the middle. And then there is the forsaking or 
divorce that is taking place at the end. So that's again captured here. Um, verse 10 down to verse 14. The Bible reads there, um, <clears throat> like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Okay, so that's the grace that reached out to Israel as um, grapes or as a fig tree, the first fruit. So he, he gathered them. He brought them into his, um, um, his stores. They are his. But, there it is, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. There is idolatry. And they became detestable like the thing they loved. And then the punishment now. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Oh, we can make our way backwards. No conception, no pregnancy, no birth. In other words, I'm coming in judgment. And part of that judgment is pictured in these words. But, verse 12, even if they bring up children, so let's assume there is conception and consequently there is pregnancy and consequently there is birth, listen to this. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. In other words, one child after the other will be buried until none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. That's again the beginning. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O oh Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. That's the punishment. And what a picture that is covered there. And yet, friends, again, this is Old Testament language. This is all poetry. But we can say the same. This is Christianity. It's Christianity. That when the Lord saved us, we were out there, lost, he is the one who reached out to us, that we might be his. And we're not just to be thinking in terms, okay, I'm not committing adultery, I'm not violent, I'm, I'm not stealing anybody's money, I'm, I'm not gossiping and slandering. We're not only to think like that. We must think in terms of my devotion. Is the Lord my all in all? That's why he has saved me. Not simply that I miss out on hell and go to heaven, but that I may be his and that he might be mine. But sadly, as we shall see again later, our tendency is before long, we don't want a monogamous marriage with the Lord. We now want idols, other things to fully satisfy us. And when we do that, we go into especially spiritual barrenness. Especially that. Spiritual barrenness. And our own souls become actually very thirsty and unfulfilled. Unfulfilled. We know nothing of real joy, spiritual joy, heavenly joy, and a sense of, if I was to die today, I would say, Lord, thank you, thank you. I'm coming home. We've lost it, lost it. Because of the many other things that have taken away the place of God. And so he comes and says, I will give you a miscarrying womb and dry breast. And this is not 
only physical, it is primarily spiritual. That there is actual complete unfulfillment and spiritual barrenness in our lives. What is there to be in? Verse 15 of this chapter, I particularly love the fact that he uses the phrase, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. In other words, uh, you know, if, if some sins are in Gilgal and others are in other cities, the, the level of disgust would not be as bad as it is here. But he's saying, in Gilgal, I see all the types of sins. Again, talking about the many sins. And he says, there, I began to hate them. I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds. And therefore, I will drive them out. So the same theme continues. Verse 17, my God will reject them. Because they have not listened to me. They shall be wanderers among the nations. I'll skip that. You can read it on your own. But it's really the same theme that is there. The, 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 the many sins that are now making God disgusted. That he gets to the point where he's saying, let's close down shop. We, we can't continue this way. Let's rush on to chapter 10. I'd like us to leave time for the Lord's Supper. The chapter 10 is bringing out something that we, especially we Christians, are often guilty of. And it is this, that when God blesses us materially, that's when we tend to go into idolatry the most. When God blesses us materially. When we were maybe teenagers and we, we didn't have a job, we needed scholarships, um, we needed a home to live in because our parents who were unbelievers uh, were giving us hell and, and the Lord provided that uh, through the church through other believers. We were very dependent on him. We, YP, we were there. Prayer meetings, we were there. We really consecrated. We even go through college or university finally with the help of the Lord. And then we now have our jobs. We, we, we now are even promoted. We, we now have what we wanted. Maybe we even get married, or we marry. And we now even have children. Have you noticed how God now gets really gated right down, down, down? We are now too busy for God. We, we the same ones. We are now too, too busy. Uh, God is no longer that important. At the most, we might live stream because we, we've got other things that are very, very important to us. We've forgotten how at one time we were so devoted to him. Look at the way he puts it here. He says, chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine, a, a vine that is at ease because it's now in the category of luxury that yields its fruit. Listen to this. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. That's the point. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. They, and therefore, here comes the punishment. The third time, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars 
and destroy their pillars. And this punishment is what he now particularly talks about. I'll just take you to verse 6 down to verse 8. Verse 6 down to verse 8. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame. And Israel shall be ashamed of his, old, his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of heaven, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. And then comes the statement that is used even in the New Testament. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. I'll punish them. Initially very dependent on me, very prayerful, because I was needed in their lives. But as I blessed them, I was thrown into the backyard. And now it was everything else. And then the line is crossed. And he says, I'm coming in to punish. Again, brethren, it's up to us to search ourselves. How dependent are we on God? When the fridge was empty, remember how we used to pray, give us today our deliverance. We, we literally prayed because we needed it. But now that the fridge is full, we have to be reminded to pray. And really, we, we, we don't want to even spend that time there because we are again out there achieving our own things. In this entire passage, there's only one place where we have the imperative, and it's verse 12. The imperative is in verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. The point is that throughout it has been, it's time to punish you. It's time to punish you. It's time to punish you. Throughout these chapters. And yet God is not just a God who is now disgusted and wants to punish. He's actually saying, you do something to avert the discipline. And how? It is by breaking the fallow ground. In other words, those same ways of sin that have now hardened over your life. You should act on it. You should take, as it were, the plow and break down that ground until the Lord rains righteousness upon you. So in case, even as we've been learning this evening, you are saying to yourself, yeah, these have become my ways. It's true. I, I, I'm, I'm no longer where I used to be, but it's going to be very hard to get back there. God is saying, I know, I know. It is fallow ground. But you must still break it. Because ultimately, your life must change. Otherwise, discipline is coming. And that's the conclusion. I'll just read the last three, three verses. Verse 13 to verse 15. And... That's the conclusion there. Trust in human security will be punished by God because of your great evil. And therefore, the message is turn, turn. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you've trusted in your own way. There it is. Trust in worldly things. And in the multitude of your worries. That's where your trust is. Your security in the things of the world. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people. This is the punishment now. And all your fortress shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Bethabel, 
on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. There it is. Great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Brethren, the words that we find here are words, as we shall see next week, of, of a lover. From chapter 11 onwards, it, it becomes appeals of a lover, saying, Israel, I have loved you. I want you back. But know that because he loves us, he must discipline us. And if our hearts have gone after other lovers, idols, other sources of devotion and fulfillment and security. We will pay for it. We will pay for it. God is not interested in that because he wants us back. He wants our lives to revolve around him. He's given us his best. He's given us his own son, Jesus. The best of heaven has been given to us. So, so why would we hold back our hearts? Why? Why would we make anything more important than him? Why? And he's the sovereign Lord of the entire universe. Why would we want to go to anyone else for a sense of fulfillment and security? Why? He should be our everything. Thank you.